Oh, we've got a theme tune now. I forgot about the theme tune. Oh, shoot. Yeah, we have to do that. We got a theme tune? Ah, uh, long story, Liz. We'll tell you later. <laughs> in the podcast. Did you get drunk and make us a theme tune? No, it was in the morning and it was Carrie. It was. And a Graham. And Graham. Shall we do it now? Hang on, yeah. Where have I put it? It started with me going, Octothorpe, Octothorpe does whatever an Octothorpe does, uh, which is like obviously classic theme tune stuff. I'm a visionary. Uh, and then people started filking in the chat of the Zoom that we were in and Carrie posted. Octothorpe, Octothorpe, you can listen to Alison talk and to John and Liz too. Octothorpe is here for you. We discuss, we review on everything we have of you. Talking cons and talking fans, if it's fandom, Octocorp can. Look out, here comes an Octothorpe. And then Graham says, Octothorpe, Octothorpe, fourth dimensional space-time warp. And and unfortunately at that point we never finished the next verse because... Because of Pat McMurray. The podcast spent 15 minutes <laughs> discussing whether... Thorpe rhymes with warp or not. And Thorpe, Thorpe absolutely rhymes with warp. This is my contention and I will take it to the grave. And I think it's fair to say that rhyming Octothorpe and warp is evidence that you're part of the cultural hegemony of the southeast of England. I'm I'm from the east, the mysterious east. <laughs> Pete, that's the first time Peterborough has ever been called the mysterious east. Are you saying I'm from the south of England? Liz, say Octothorpe and Warp. Octothorpe, Warp. This, this sort of rhyme. Yeah. Yeah, so you're doing the thing where you put, you pronounce the R in Warp. 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 <laughs> no, you're thinking of Cornwall. Yeah, I'm not from Cornwall. Warp. <laughs> Warp. <laughs> anyway, all of these will be available on the Patreon Octothorpe soundboard, coming real soon now. Thank you very much uh, to everyone who was in that Zoom call uh, for filking along. Uh, and if anyone has any suggestions uh, for additions to the Octothorpe theme tune in terms of verses, please do write in and let us know. It's been too long since we did any poetry. But critically, if you're a filker and reading this, because I'm sure some of you are, if you'd like to work that up into an actual thing that we could use as a theme song... 500 episodes later, we can still be playing it to the great annoyance of a certain proportion of our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 43rd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 28th of October, 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And it's almost Halloween, so we're in a really spooky mood. Yep. I've got my pumpkin-coloured uh, microphone muffler on to celebrate the season either of you doing anything for halloween i think i might have i think i might have a movie marathon on my own i ha i have got a pumpkin dremel oh so yes i am going to be carving a pumpkin this year because i didn't carve a pumpkin last year because um there wasn't really halloweeny stuff that needed pumpkins um so i decorated my windows instead so that children could stand outside and look at them in a non-contact way but this year we're going to have a pumpkin and we're going to wear masks while we dish out the 
candy because that's the thing you could do on Halloween and nobody thinks it's weird. Yeah, we, we might dress up. We'll be doing the candy uh, and we will uh, be carving a pumpkin. It used to be tradition when I was an undergraduate that we would marathon the Saw movies on Halloween and I might do that again this year because there's a new Saw movie out which I haven't watched yet. I mean, the problem is now that there are nine Saw movies. When we launched this tradition, there were only four. <laughs> it was a lot easier back then. Couldn't you just, like, pick three random Saw movies and binge them? No. Okay. Can we have this talk? Are the Saw movies good? You wouldn't like them, I don't think. No, just checking. I like I like them a great deal. I quite like that. I think the first one is good. The third one is the most critically well-received, but it's also the worst, so I don't really know what that means. Uh, your critical faculties are on tilt, which we knew, in fact. I think I saw the first one, and it does involve someone doing something with a hacksaw to themselves, which I did not enjoy. So I will not be watching saw movies. Um, and also trick-or-treating is not a huge thing, and, you know, you can't trick-or-treat me. I live inside an apartment building. And the only pumpkins we've got are green, so they would be slightly non-traditional pumpkins if I tried to carve one. Nice. And I don't have a pumpkin dremel. I mean, I have actually, there was one year when I thought about carving a watermelon because pumpkins had disappeared from the shops at the point where I wanted to carve a pumpkin. Carve a papaya. Less traditional, but they are orangey, so. I, I can think of a number of reasons why this is a terrible, terrible idea. Try carving a peach. Just get a very unripe, very large peach. You'll be all right. Like a giant peach, maybe. Yeah, I'm like, John, is, this, this is not, this is like the plot of a children's book, I think, rather than actual real life. John and the giant peach. I mean, all I'm saying is it could work if you squint a bit. Okay, so all of you people who haven't actually <laughs> made a habit of carving fruit and vegetables, it kind of needs to be something of the squash family, like a pumpkin or a melon and not, and not um, a peach, not stone fruit or, or whatever papayas are. Yeah, crucially, it needs to not have a stone in the middle, right? I mean, if you want to put a light in it, then you need to be able to hollow it out. And so, you know, you're not going to be hollowing out a pomegranate, I'll just say. You, you could hollow out. You could hollow out a papaya, I think, because they've got kind of like uh, seeds in the middle. Yeah, but, but, but the problem with papaya is going to be that, that it doesn't have enough structural integrity to, to whack it with a Dremel. You know, if you, if you don't believe me, then Google, I carved a papaya with a Dremel videos on the... Um, no, I mean, what we're going to do is Liz is going to do it and video herself and that, that is going to go up on YouTube. Like, come on. I do not own a Dremel. This is even better. If you do Google papaya carving, it is actually even better than pumpkin carving. It is like ornamental fruit carving. Yeah, that's because, yeah. Maybe I'll learn to do that instead of the Dremel one. <gasps> that's so pretty. Mm. Yes, do a scary one. They are pretty, yeah. No, okay. Apparently, you can carve papayas. Uh, those, that's amazing. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Well, I know what I'm doing for for Halloween. I need papaya and uh, a very sharp knife. And it's a Thai thing, apparently. Yeah, it's fruit carving. So I was totally wrong. And in fact, papaya carving a papaya is something you can do. I admit I made a mistake. Right. Clip that out, John. That's going to be the episode title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Excellent. Before we go into let us a comment, a uh, reminder to everyone that we are doing Octothorpe live at NovaCon at 1pm on Sunday. This will be episode 45, so come along and shout things at us. 
I, I would like to state that uh, a correspondent uh, in Discord, one Mr. Andrew Hogg, did call it Forktothorpe Live. Does that work? Forktothorpe? Forktothorpe, yes. Like, it's not quite full Octothorpe. Hogg also says I was uh, replaced by an actor at some point after seeing the ZZ9 AGM video and Andrew January said that he's approaching that point where he's not confident he's ever known what John looks like. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm glad to have sown uh, confusion and doubt. We got a letter of comment. Yay! From Chris Garcia. Yay! Who says, it was another good episode and one that provided an eye-opener. Alison lived in America. Does she still know the secret handshake? Alison, do you still know the secret handshake? No, don't. Well, that was less funny than I was expecting. Yeah, sorry. Stimulants not yet coursing through my veins. <laughs> right. Let, I, I mean, I know that I've had several days to think of a funny riposte. Have another go. Chris says, Alison lived in America. Does she still know the secret handshake? Yes, but it's not a handshake. Oh. Is that better? It's got an air of mystery about it. Interesting. He also says that the next drink tank is all about Lego and I should write about the Lego Club. And instead of writing about the Lego Club, I've told you all that he said I should. Nailed it. Um, We also got a tweet of comment from Bridget Bradshaw who tweeted a link to um, a itinerary for travelling from London to Thailand and Liz responded. Yes, so so crucially... There is currently one missing link, which is basically you can get as far as either the Chinese border or Hanoi, but there's no direct train links at the moment through any of the countries that border Thailand to the north and east and west. But it looks like they're going to open a railway from Vientiane and Lao to Kunming in China, which means that missing link will be solved and it will be feasible to take a train, I think, all the way from Bangkok and go all the way around through China, Russia, Mongolia, if you want to, you know, and then from Moscow, you can get a train to Paris, then from Paris, you can get the train to London, and you'd be sorted. You could, in fact, come all the way to Novacon on the train, but you'd have to start, like, now, so. (laughs) So, so my first question was, but can you do it in 80 days, bearing in mind the location of the international state line, and my open brackets spoiler for a novel published in 18-umpty-um, Secondly, it would be really funny if it turns out the difficulty with getting from Bangkok to Buxton by public transport was, in fact, the terrible train service to Buxton, (laughs) um, which would not be impossible. We also heard from Ali Baker and C. Dave and Androzin on Facebook. You too can comment on Facebook if you join the Octthorpe Facebook group. There's a link in the show notes. You you also have to sell your soul to Mark Zuckerberg, which you might not want to do. And if you don't do that, we are available on another a number of other fine platforms that are not owned by Facebook. Yes. So Anne said in response to um, my discussion of the Hitchhiker's Guide books I had as a kid, which had the four covers you could arrange in four different ways. She said, I have those book covers, but not the box if it was a box set, which is typical Rosin behaviour. Uh, don't worry, Anne. I don't think they came in a box. That was it. couple of conventions have announced their covid policies in what is rapidly becoming a feature of octothorpe in the covid policy roundup it's the covid policy roundup it's the covid policy roundup the 
Octothorpe Covid Policy Roundup. Uh, like my jaunty tune. Um, yes, so Smofcon has announced their Covid policy and Alison is going to tell us about it. So Smofcon were waiting apparently until Portugal updated Covid regulations on the 1st of October, which a lot of countries have. Um, so as of the 1st of October in Portugal, mask wearing at conferences is mandatory. Mask wearing in bars and restaurants is not required. Digital certification of vaccination is required by bars, but not hotels or restaurants. Smofcon is doing all of that, plus they're additionally ensuring good social distancing and ventilation in their programme spaces. All members need to either be vaccinated before attending or have written to the convention um, to tell them that they're not vaccinated so they can arrange to give them a test on arrival. And at any rate, everybody has to come to the convention having either had a recent lateral flow test and or have some evidence of having had that or take a lateral flow test. They'll have lateral flow tests on reception to test everyone. They're going to have sanitation stations. Portugal has a strong uptake of vaccination and has 78% of the population vaccinated. I don't know if that's 78% of adults or 78% of the entire population, which sounds pretty good if it is. Yeah, Portugal has astonishingly high vaccination rates, doesn't it? That's like tick VG, isn't it? I mean, that, that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah, no, sounds good. Well, I do have a, sorry, I have a question. When they say that you need a digital COVID pass to get into bars, do we know what that entails? It's the EU pass or the NHS pass, I think. I've seen something, because prior to the 1st of October, I was worried that my NHS pass would not do for me. But in fact, in practice, I believe that carrying everything on paper also works perfectly well in Portugal, people say. Okay. But obviously not all countries have a vaccination certificate that will work in Portugal. Yes, I have a I have a digital vaccination certificate, but it is not interoperable with the EU digital COVID pass. So I presume there is some wiggle room there. You're not coming to Smofcon though, are you? No, but I could feasibly come to Smofcon. Yeah, so I think there are people coming to Smofcon from around the world, and I think it would mm. be interesting to see what happens there. But obviously Portugal doesn't want to trash its conference trade from the United States, so they'll be doing something. Yes. Alongside Smofcon, Corflu Concord has released their COVID policy in PR5, uh, and there'll be a link in the show notes. So basically, as far as I could tell, they are saying that masks, double vaccination, and regular thorough hand washing are not compulsory, but very strongly encouraged. They say also that Novacon's guidance is excellent, and they've reprinted it. And Novacon are saying that members should be vaccinated where possible. So, yeah, I guess basically do what Novacon says and then go to core flu. I'm kind of like what I really require of these things, which is probably less than John does, is that conventions have a policy and publicise it. And obviously we slightly prefer more stringent policies, but actually the important thing is having had is that the committee have thought about it and written something down. And I'm quite glad that all of the conventions that I'm going to in the next few weeks have got these. Hopefully I won't catch COVID whilst gallivanting around the world. I mean, it's, it's a bit like a code of conduct in that my minimum is that I require one, but I do have slightly higher standards than that for what I would expect to see in it. But mostly I want you to have one and have thought about it. Yes, Corflu is a very small convention though. And in fact, all three of these conventions are quite small. So Eastercon, we're looking at you. To, to set standards here. Yeah, aren't Novacon full? Novacon are, I believe, close to full. They're closing memberships on the 9th of November. 
Um, you're not going to be able to buy memberships if you ruck up uh, on the day. That will not be possible. I believe last time I looked at the membership list, they're coming up on 250 members. Um, and I don't have a feel for how many people usually go to Novacom, but I, I have a hunch that is towards the top end of attendance. Yeah, they're at 254 members at the moment. Yeah, that, that's quite high for a Novacon. For, but it's because it's Novacon 50. They were always expecting it to be a big one. I don't think it's just that, though. I think it's also because it's the first in-person convention in the UK, like, for... That's not Corflu. Or Fancycom. Novacon's the first general science fiction convention that's not, not specific. I think that's a better way to say it. Apart from BristolCon. No, because BristolCon's a one-day con. So... Novacon is the first full weekend general science fiction convention. I think Novacon will probably be the biggest that will have been held for a while. So I don't think Fancycon was 250 people. If they have 250 people attending, I think that will be bigger. But anyway, yes, so we will link to the core flu COVID policy in the show notes. Core flu has 69 members. Nice. Of whom I think about 50 are attending. So it is much smaller than Novacon. Yeah, it'll get some more at the last minute. And we have some Americans flying over, which is quite nice. So there's, there's going to be a nice, small, international, fanzine-focused crowd for Corflu, and that sounds pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. This episode of Octothorpe is sponsored by Stowe Shirts. Here we are in the season of mists, mellow fruitfulness, in-person super spreader events and holiday planning. And what better than to get unusual shirts, mugs and other paraphernalia with fanish and nerdy themes from Stow Shirts. Stow Shirts designs are unique and targeted closely on the sorts of people who listen to Octothorpe. I, for instance, have a punctuation hoodie which keeps me warm at times of year when it is not as warm. For instance, in a minute. Admittedly, I bought it in the summer, and so I haven't really been able to test it, but I'm assuming it will work, because it is a hoodie. You can visit octothorpe.stoshirts.com for a carefully curated range of goodies, including our own Octothorpe merchandise, uh, by which we mean we have a t-shirt, and you can use secret code OCTOTHORPE for 10% off. Thank you to Stow Shirts for sponsoring Octothorpe and enabling amazing sound effects like this. Jesus. So we're going to talk today about guests of honour and um, how they're announced and... um... I thought we were talking about bidding for Easter cons and world cons. So there is a tradition amongst traditional science fiction conventions, by which I mean really Easter cons and world cons and conventions in that vein, where there is a bidding process, and you might not be the seated convention, of not announcing your guests of honour until you are until you have won the bid, um, so that people who are voting for you do not know who you are planning to have as guests, and that cannot form part of the voting process. So the reason for doing this, and the reason it's a tradition, is that the conventions have argued that we're not having guests as some form of marketing strategy. The guests are there because they're being honoured. 
Um, and as such, if you give people the opportunity to vote on those guests, it's not an honour. They're kind of going, oh, do we like that person? Do we not like that person? However, that has a major downside, as John will explain. So um, there is a there is a potential negative here, which is obviously if everyone is very happy with your guests of honour, then it works super well. But if you have picked a guest of honour who is problematic for any reason, then that can mean that when people find out who your guests of honour are, they have concerns or issues, and those can be concerns or issues around kind of the Me Too movement and code of conduct violations in day gone by, but it can also be stuff like we saw with Discon 3 and Tony Weisskopf, where she was uninvited as a guest of honour after it turned out that the Bayon boards had been involved to some extent in the January the 6th um, insurrection in the United States. Uh, and so there is like a potential issue there. Um, and so it's kind of, it's kind of, there are, I think, good arguments that either one has its ups and its downs. Recently, the Astounding and the Otherwise Awards were renamed after it was realised that there were potential issues with the people for whom they were originally named. And this has spilled over, I think, into discussions of guests of honour in recent times, where there is a concern that honouring certain people might be um, problematic from certain angles. This is something that I think hasn't yet been addressed by the mode of keeping the guests of honour secret until the bid wins, because it means that any problem with a guest of honour also can't be um, challenged as part of the bid process and this is I think potentially an issue that hasn't yet been discussed in the genre and I think it is an issue that is going to be shortly um, addressed in the genre because of the current push towards um, trying to avoid honouring people who are um, who who have problematic aspects. So okay so the problem here is that there are two ways of doing this one is to do your due diligence before you invite people and say, aha, we want to invite this person. Do they have any skeletons in their closet and ask around and people will tell you. Um, and then you make your judgments. And if you say, oh, no, we're going to invite them anyway. And in the case of Tony Weisskopf, that's what happened. They they knew perfectly well what people said about Tony. Um, they invited her anyway. And then as a result of the insurrection, part of which had been fermented, in the in the spaces that Tony, um, you know, encouraged and didn't discourage, they decided that position was untenable. So it's not quite the same thing, but they certainly knew about the issues at the point where she was invited. That was part of the point. Um, Discon is in is in some respects a Southern convention, and that was a thing that they were doing. I mean, I think I I, I have some. Ex- so the problem is that the question is really: Do you want to do a thing where you go, ah? Oh, we're thinking of having so-and-so as a guest. Oh, community, tell us if they're good enough, because that's essentially what you're saying. And I kind of I kind of hate that idea. I think if you're going to say we're honouring people, then it is it is incumbent on you to make sure they're worthy of being honoured and then announce them and then follow through with that. I think in practice, you have to do your due diligence and decide what you're doing in private, whether you announce them with the bid or you announce them with the con. Because if you announce if you announce your guests when you announce your bid then and people don't want them as a guest of honor then they will basically tell you why this person should not be honored by your convention and then your choice is either to stick with them at which point the vote becomes not just a vote on the bid but a vote on the bid's guests which you know is is something we is something we could consider doing or you might be in a position where the bids are then saying well actually should we change our guest of honor mid bid as some you know disinvite them as conventions have done 
Um, so I think you kind of move, you just kind of move the whole thing to an earlier phase, but a phase where there is a the potential for people to say, actually, we really dislike this decision you've made on Guests of Honour, and therefore we are going to vote for the other bid. Uh, and in a case where there isn't another bid, people would then say, actually, we feel so strongly about this, we are going to mount a rival bid. Um, I think I think there is an argument that, that that could be a desirable thing, that you give people that, that chance to vote. But it also brings in the fact that people are then just going to vote for cons where they don't have a problem with the other bids, guests of honour. They just like this set of guests of honour more. And then you do turn it into a kind of a popularity contest between the different bids. I think that's both the advantage and disadvantage of doing it that way, which is firstly, it means if you pick someone problematic who people do have a problem with, they have some agency in pushing back against that that isn't asking you to uninvite the person. And I remember at the time that Discon was uninviting Tony, Alison and I had a big argument about whether or not that was acceptable. Uh, I was very much on the side of they should disinvite her and Alison was very much on the side of you don't disinvite a guest once you've invited them. Um, and I think the problem with that is it's much easier if you if you are making the guests of honor part of the bidding process it means that if people don't like a guest they can vote against the bid and then the bid never has to disinvite someone the bid can be defeated and there's no issue of honor there but there's still a mechanism by which the guest of honor can be not honored and it means the community can express opinions about problematic guests without asking conventions to go back on invitations which i think um i think would be a positive the the negative obviously is like if you have a world con that announces like three local authors from the country that the world con is being held in or from the state that the world con is being held in all of whom are not quite as famous and then you have a world con that goes for massive like well-known global authors that is going to sway things and that would be i think a disadvantage and i think that is a difficult thing i don't know if i think either one is clearly better but i do wonder whether if we're not going to make the guests part of the bidding process convention bid committees need to think very carefully about what their procedure is should there um, become a problem with a guest after they've won and after that's been announced let me backtrack a bit when you say a problem with a guest clearly there's some cases where there are major problems with guests but there are also cases where what you actually have is a load of Twitter people going off on one. And we are too quick to say people going off on one on Twitter without having thought through issues matter more than the considered opinions of people who have thought through the issues and come to a conclusion. And we need to be much better about saying people's immediate reactions on Twitter, in some cases because somebody, one person has fermented a row where they've said, get a thousand people to write in. We make these knee-jerk reactions. And, and actually, if you took a step back, you go, well, you know, yes, in this case, there is, there is a case to answer here. In this case, maybe not. But also, how do we know? Because I think this business of judging the behaviour of people of the past, we have some cases where people did do or write things where we absolutely know they're problematic and we can look at them and go, oh, yes, we would never we would never accept this thing now. But we have other cases where, where actually it's just not that, there's just not that much evidence. People are just going off on one. I think it's hard to discuss this without like going into the evidence and the merits of specific cases. I mean, I do agree that generally if something is on Twitter, it, a lot of people express very strong feelings about it uh, very immediately. 
And I think we've discussed before how that can kind of pressure cons also into taking very quick judgments because there is that pressure weighing down on them. But I think in certain cases, it has been like the only route. I'm going to bring up here um, Frank Miller, who was invited to Thought Bubble this year as a guest. And now Thought Bubble has no bid process. It's just a convention and they announce their guests and they announce Frank Miller. And a lot of people said we would prefer Frank Miller is not a guest because of his extremely Islamophobic works. And it, it turned out that basically the person who brought this up had contacted Thought Bubble privately and nothing happened. And so they were forced to take it public in order for something to happen. So I think it is good that we, we do have this route um, where people can bring public pressure, especially if the convention seems unwilling to take their concerns seriously. And the outcome of this is that Frank Miller has been disinvited as a guest, um, which is something I think I would personally agree with. Um, I think I, th- I think that's a very good um, point, which is if you don't have this being part of a bid process and obviously with thought bubble that wasn't something that would ever have happened but if you wait for it to be part of the convention there's an enormous amount of inertia on the sense of convention not to have to say oh we have goofed we're going to go back on that and one of the only ways to make that equation swing in the in the sense of because if you're a convention you've you've, you've invited a guest disinviting them looks bad and so the only way for people to exert pressure is to make it look worse if they don't and that's where you get the big public um things coming from and you see the same thing with with private companies like someone complains through the official customer service channels and nothing happens and then someone posts on twitter and retweets start happening and some suddenly the company goes back on it and and so it and, and it is annoying it is annoying that that's how it works but i don't think it's necessarily I, I I think it's very understandable why it ends up working like that quite often. Um, and I think it's all to do with kind of perception and, and pride and, and, and sort of those kinds of things, um, as Liz says. I want to take this open a, a little bit more broadly, because you did touch on the fact that some conventions choose their guests because this person is a stalwart of the community and we want to honour them. And some people, or they write very, very good books and we would like to bring them to a wider to wider notice and some people choose their guests on the basis of who will put the most bums on seats and i don't know are these equally valid approaches Wilcon has a an internal i don't know if it's formally a rule but they have an internal notion that people will have spent 25 years in the field before they get invited as a Wilcon guest um and that means that we often get complaints that all the Wilcon guests are very old as a result of that and that's why you get and that's why you get people like charlie jane and uh charlie jane anders and annalee knew it's being invited to be toastmasters right because it you don't need to have done a certain amount of work to be toastmaster but it does let you celebrate and lets you celebrate kind of younger members of the community yeah because the toastmaster is not a welcome guest and actually that's a really good point because it does i, I guess it does mean that especially with with world cons you do end up with a with a pool that is more likely to have perhaps said things in the past that they're not proud of and, and wanted to to change although i can't remember many yeah but there's different there's different ways there's a very standard way of dealing with this which is somebody says oh in at such and such a time you were saying such and such a thing and you go you're right i should never have done that i am terribly sorry i have given a proportion of my income to the teddy bears protection league or whatever because of the terrible things i've said in the past and and everyone goes, oh, all right then, mostly. 
I obviously dead people can't do that, which is important if you're thinking of honouring dead people. And there are some things for which that's not considered to be adequate, but that's not mostly the case for the people in our community. No, and I think I think like uh, obviously most world cons, the only world cons that have honoured dead people, I think, are people who died after they were announced. With I think there's one exception, right? But I can't remember what the one exception is. There's a ghost of honour for one world con, right? Yeah, I can't remember who it was. There have occasionally been ghosts of honour at world cons and Easter cons. I mean, it's a great pun. And then it is normal for world cons to um, continue to honour guests who die in the who were intended to be guests and have now died. Um, I, th- I think going back to um, you do need to do your work, though. So I, I also, because I'd slightly prefer to see guests who may not be 100% perfect people, but are towering figures in the community. Um, and again, that there's a borderline there because there are things I don't want to, you know, I don't think we should be inviting Islamophobic American comic artists, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but because one of the alternatives to that is to invite people who nobody has ever heard of. And and it is certainly true that if you do that, the chances that people will have things to say about them is much reduced, but it makes your convention a bit less exciting. So, I mean, obviously there is a middle ground in between inviting racists and people no one's met. I, there is, but I mean, so uh, to take, for example, some years ago now, primarily on LiveJournal, which tells you how old it was, there was the whole um, race fail thing, right? Yeah. And a lot of names in science fiction and fantasy were involved in it. And many of them are subsequently invited to conventions as guests of honour. And I'm sure some of them have discussed it and discussed their feelings better at the time. I mean, I think certainly like my, you know, I think I'm certainly like my uh, opinions and thoughts on things have definitely changed, like in that 15 year span or whatever. And I'm sure a lot of theirs have as well. But in some cases, we now have like these discussions that were taking place online and can be, you know, were there for everyone to see. And I think the the key thing to go, to think about is like if you're inviting this person as a guest, and there is something in their history where you feel like this this could be a problem for many attendees. And the thing to do is to look at it and see, you know, what kind of magnitude was it, and what is their response now to you bringing it up to them? Is their response to say yes, that was you know a mistake I made in the past and I have done this to, you know, make up for it? Or is it them to say, you know, that's the thing I did in the past, it's all ancient history? Or is it thing to say, yes, it's something I did in the past and I would stand by those opinions uh, now? And I'm thinking again of Wiscon. Who is the Wiscon guest of honour? So this is the, the like the first one I can think of where someone was disinvited as a, as a guest of honour. Elizabeth Moon, that was it. Ah, I remember this. And this was uh, way back in... 2010 2011 uh she was disinvited essentially for saying things on her blog that were not acceptable to the membership so you know this is not a, entirely a new thing that is happening but obviously i would guess at the time that this happened because they were online and it could spread around whereas previously that might have been in a fanzine with limited circulation i think race fell is interesting because it did two there was two things going on there so first of all Plenty of people who really shouldn't have been were were on the the wrong side of that argument. Um, but also, some of the the argument was not just being advanced by people of good intentions and character. It was also being stirred by an agitator. So, and not an agitator because somebody who 
who was, um, oh, I want, I think science fiction fandom really needs to address this, which it did and has done now, I think, a lot. Um, But also somebody who was like, I can increase my personal store by making this a bigger argument than it would otherwise be. So, and that that turned out to involve a lot of quite bad behaviour. So it's complicated. When you're when you're making arguments, you might not also want to make death threats, that sort of thing. That's true. Alice and I originally disagreed on disinviting Tony Weisskopf, but then when she doubled down and said the Bain forums were fine and didn't need any um, work, that was the point at which we both very much were in agreement of, oh, no, like, she could sod off. And if she had launched a widespread program of reform, I would have been like, maybe they should re-invite her because she's clearly... Because there needs to be an incentive for people coming around to a perspective that the community finds more compelling i think and maybe that doesn't need to take the form of honoring them but like i don't know like if you are showing that you're like in the case of race fail if you said things that you then reflected on and are no longer representative of your opinions i don't think that should disqualify you from being a guest of honor necessarily if if you've done that work but if you if you're elizabeth moon and you've stood by the things you wrote that got you disinvited from WizCon, I'd be surprised if a Worldcon then invited Elizabeth Moon as a guest of honour because I don't think she has done that work. And that WizCon disinvitation was a decade ago now, which is terrifying. Yeah, so this has all been going on for quite a long time. Yeah, I, I must admit, and I'm really glad Liz brought that up because I had forgotten that that had happened, but but that is actually a really good point that this... I, I was I was very much thinking of this as a kind of recent discussion but it but it isn't as much as i had thought it was i think it's gotten louder but i don't think it's new in some ways i think it's got less loud i think science fiction fandom reflected after all of that and to a very large extent put its stall in order um and one of the things that we're not bad at is, is taking the being a global community seriously and 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 making the sorts of changes to our behavior that you need to do if you are a global community we are not perfect collection of individuals individuals never perfect but i think you do see over over and over again in sf that we have these sorts of arguments and then we go oh well does that mean we have to change and change is hard for people it takes longer than it should we're not as good as we might be i don't think race fail which i wasn't really involved with but was reading at the time is a thing i can really put into context but i can link a couple of posts in the show notes which do are one from N.K. Jemison in 2010 talking about it and, you know, what good things might have come out of it. And there's one from uh, Jamie Goh last year in Strange Horizons um, thinking about uh, definitions of whiteness and Eurocentrism and how they end up post-race fail. So I will put those in the show notes if anyone wants to go and read up on it more. And one of those links to um, a primer on it on fan law in case you missed this discussion entirely, which you may have because it was in uh, 2009. On the topic of race fail and on the topic of uh, ethnicity and privilege, um, I think the other thing that's worth noting is that we are obviously all coming at this from a kind of European white perspective. And I don't know the extent to which, like, if you're a person of colour in the States, I don't know how you viewed Tony Weisskopf's invitation kind of before the controversy in January. You thought it was terrible and you thought it told you something about Discon and what sort of convention it was. I mean, not all of them, but many of them, because people are not a coherent block. And I suspect that many of our listeners are, in fact, um, in the same boat as we are. So, so um, 
I, I obviously like our perspectives are limited and we we I, I think are all mindful of our privilege but um if you are if you have any thoughts on this from that perspective please do write in because i'd be interested to hear them I, th- I think this links us back round, which is if you are a convention and you are thinking of inviting someone as a guest of honor and you are trying to do your due diligence and talk to people then you have to talk to people who have a different perspective um than you do and yeah you also have to think about what it means if you do decide to invite that person because i suspect yeah what it meant was a lot of fans looked at discon and maybe said this is not the convention for me and they have alternatives they can go to other conventions they can go to firecon where they know um they're going to feel much more comfortable and i think you have to think about what this says about the ethos and the nature of your convention and the people you want to attract and what sort of convention you want to be and your guests of honor are like the one of the public expressions of the convention you would like to be which doesn't mean you can just invite diverse guests of honor and have done with it but you do need to think about who you invite as as guests of honor as part of it I will also say that although I absolutely accept I am dripping in with white privilege, Liz and I are both women and all sorts of things are continuing to demonstrate that people have not learnt the... You know, I'm still watching new movies, I am reading new books where the notion that women are people and should not therefore, for example, be given as prizes to the hero, the notion that women deserve to have equal roles in in science fiction is still kind of out there. And um, Frank Miller's not just Islamophobic, you know. Um, so so, so it's not just about race. Um, I, I would like, you know, you want people who, who demonstrate that they take, well, essentially the, the, the humanity of women in, as, as a critical part of what they're doing as well, please. And I think this is all just about thinking about your guests and why you're inviting them and what what the honour believes and should you do it when you bid? Convention committees bemoan the fact that you want people to bid on the basis of how competent the people are to run the convention and what you actually get is people bidding on how much they want to visit uh, Winnipeg rather than Chengdu or whatever. Um, and so all you do if you add guests into the bidding mix is that you give people another thing to vote on that isn't how competent the committee is. So I want to say two things, which is firstly, and this is something that's been happening in the, I listened to an actual play podcast and they had someone write to them basically saying like, actually, you've got this thing in your kind of base conceit, which is super problematic in terms of like ethnicity. And they hired a cultural consultant to come on and kind of um, talk it through with them. And they made changes based on that. And I think that's the thing. It is not about not making mistakes, but it's about when you notice you've made the mistake, taking the actions you need to take as a result. And I do wonder whether conventions, like I wonder whether cultural consultants might be the sort of people that might be able to help out with that. But I don't know um, to what extent that's true. On the topic of the difference between ethnicity and gender, I do notice that all three of the examples we've currently got in the show notes are examples where someone was found out to have problematic views in terms of um, white privilege or ethnicity and were then disadvantaged. And as far as I can tell, we haven't mentioned any examples where people have been disinvited for things connected to sexism or things connected to Me Too or things like that. So I wonder whether that will be, when I was saying this is a newer discussion i wonder whether the thing that's newer is in fact the more gender component to the conversation because i do think gender has been something we've we've kind of 
come on a little bit on in the last few years with discussions like Me Too? I am going to just mention that there was a lot of disquiet about the Saudi Arabian bid for Wilcon. And it's complicated because the a lot of the disquiet was focused about around LGBT rights. Um, and I'm kind of like, and that is all very well, but they have half the population enslaved and you're not doing anything about it. So, you know, again, I feel like I feel like the, the gender issues are often not um, not quite as um, prominent as they ought to be. Um, but, you know, it, it, we, we have common cause there. But so the Saudi Arabian bid, despite the fact that the, the fans who are bidding are absolutely lovely, had people expressing a great deal of concern. And I think also there's a great deal of concern around um, the Chengdu bid because of the Chinese government's um, record on human rights. Um, so I just want to say one more thing, which is in Googling for Ghosts of Honour, and I didn't find anything on Ghosts of Honour, so if either of you two have good links, please pop them. Oh, I, I found it, yeah. Oh, good, good. But Paul Cornell back in 2011 suggested a um, suggested the concept of the um, ghost of honor future. So, as well as the ghost of honor past and the guest of honor present, you have the ghost of honor future. Uh, and it was you have an unknown individual listed as a guest of honor, and then you have a vote at like the Worldcon 50 years out to retrospectively decide like who was born that year, who had been, who, who has made the biggest contribution to the genre. And I like, I think obviously because the point of the guest of honor is to impact the programming. So I'm not really sure whether it works as like a logistical com running concept, but it is kind of cool i do quite like the idea of 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 trying to have like the person for each world con who was born that year who had the greatest effect on the community thereafter um so i've put a link to his uh blog post in the show notes because it made me smile back on 87 the isacon had hg wells as the ghost of honor and they had um ian watson dressing up as hg wells and we had a plan and giving a very good, very well-received Ghost of Honor speech in the body of H.G. Wells, and I'm sure H.G. Wells was problematic, but, you know, it was quite a long time ago for both 87 and um, H.G. Wells. And, of course, um, the Plucked.com in 2000 had was expected to have a lot of fetuses at it because um, because Caroline and I were both very pregnant at the time of the convention, and as was Laurie Meltzer, but in fact Laurie couldn't come to the convention because her baby decided to come seven weeks early. So there we go. Shall we do picks? Yeah, yeah, let's do quick picks quickly. Quickle, quickle pickles. Quick picks. All right. I went to see Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I enjoyed it a lot. In the cinema? Did you go to the cinema? I went to see it in the cinema on a Tuesday at 10.45. There were two other people, which honestly was busier than I was expecting. That's what I'm planning to do for June. That's fair. Um, the I quite liked it. It cheats for for sort of two key reasons, which is firstly, it's got Aquafina in it, and I love Aquafina, so I was always, I was always going to be partial to this particular movie, and she is very good in it. And secondly, it's set in San Francisco, and I do love San Francisco. Unsurprisingly, listeners, I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd accidentally got the impression it was set in China, so there you go. But I learned that this is about the Chinese-American experience, and Chinese-Americans often love this movie. 
so the the beginning of the film is set in san francisco and then by the end they are uh in china uh it is it is very good um i enjoyed it a lot um uh and i was glad i went to see it i think it might be in my top five marvel movies because i really did very much enjoy it but as i said it is it is very much my cup of tea and it reminded me weirdly of always be my baby which i also love uh and it's also set in san francisco and it's got ali wong and randall park in uh and they're very good and i would recommend that film as well so you know cheeky extra pick what it is it has lots of chinese culture in it lots of the dialogue is in mandarin and people from around asia have commented on how it's got it's a superhero with a chinese backstory that is not racist this is good i mean i might say there's quite a low bar there's quite a low bar to what are you, what are you what are you quoting there though <laughs> on the new york times uh alison do you want to do picks uh yep i ha- it has been a week since we last recorded and i believe that i have done no genre reading or watching in that week apart from a bit more foundation um i have instead watched more of the new season of taskmaster very funny um i have read a book called the how not to die diet um which is kind of related in that it was given to me by um the the a science fiction fan who runs a publishing company um but other than that it doesn't really have anything to do with with science fiction um spoiler immediately adopt a plant-based whole foods based diet that is very low in processed foods a bit depressing really and um and i've started to read a large book about the folk song of england i thought you were doing quick picks alison i said i would waffle for five minutes and that isn't even five minutes yeah i don't think we need five minutes on on things that are not genre (laughs) so no genre for me this week uh, I also, I mean, I did consume some genre things this week, but um, I didn't like them very much and I don't want to be mean about them on the podcast. So I'll go with the genre thing, which I finished consuming last week. I mean, I'm going to call it genre. I basically finished playing the fourth Uncharted game. They are basically, what if you were playing a video game, but it was sort of Indiana Jones, um, but with more pirates and stuff. So basically they're fun action adventures and they also get much better as the series goes on because in the first one, the protagonist is really just a dick. And by the fourth one, he's become a likable dick. Um, uh, You know, the fourth one is a sort of, I've given up the um, treasure hunting business and I've gone legit, but my brother comes to visit me and he pulls me back in for one last vital mission, etc. Um but by the last one, they've just become incredibly slick experiences and it is kind of as close as you can get to actually playing a movie um, and pressing the buttons at the right time to leap off the ledge and so on. Alison's making a face at me because Alison's saying these are the sort of games she'd hate, but they're lots of fun. I mean, I'm good to give a... I don't know if I mentioned Baba is You last um, Octothorpe, but I am playing Baba is You. I am completely stuck in multiple different places. Um, so I, I like the sense of a, a game that makes you think a lot and where you get stuck and preferably without any cutscenes or if there have to be cutscenes, can they make them short, please? There are a lot of cutscenes in this, but I mean, this is a Naughty Dog game and they are uh, basically spectacularly better at cutscenes than most people because I think they literally have the actors do them and, you know, motion cap the face 
to make it look like it is actually a person rather than sort of an assembly of polygons in some way. But their actors look incredibly good. And so when you're watching the cutscenes, it is like you are watching a scene from a movie. And I think they can do that by only having like five characters and they spend lots of time lovingly getting the mocap working for those five characters, basically. I'll put some YouTube vids in. It's just a movie, isn't it? It's a movie. Yeah, but it's a fun movie where I get... It's a movie with buttons. Yeah, it's basically a movie with buttons where I get to climb up the cliff and stuff. When it's a movie where you can play Crash Bandicoot in the middle. Oh, you do have to play Crash Bandicoot. That's really annoying. (laughs) But it's over as soon as you die. So, And it is genre because any universe in which someone can kill that many people and still be charismatic must not be set in our universe. I mean, the other other counterpoint to that is uh, James Bond, whose body count in the latest James Bond film is astonishing. That was the 43rd episode of the Octothought podcast. Thank you very much again to Stow Shirts for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Octothorpe, Octothorpe, you can listen to Alison talk and to John and Liz too, Octothorpe is here for you. We discuss, we review on everything we have of you. Talking cons and talking fans, if it's fandom, Octocorp can. Look out, here comes an Octothorpe. We will not be doing Octothorpe live at Corflu, but that's because we're doing Octothorpe live at Novacon. I mean, effectively, you will be doing... Effectively, you will be doing Octothorpe Live at Corflu. It's just it will be at 1am and it will be in the bar and it will just be John and Alison talking loudly. I've got a microphone on my phone. We could record a little bit of Octothorpe. (laughs) We could record a little segment for Octothorpe live from the bar at Corflu. (gasps) We can ring Liz. We can ring Liz and record an Octothorpe, which is just us leaving messages on Liz's voicemail. No, no, no. What What time are we staying up till? What time will it be in Bangkok? If you stay up late enough, I will have got up. It will be six hours ahead. No, I will be seven hours ahead. Because well, the talks have changed. Yes, yeah, so be, I'll be seven hours ahead. Yes! Brilliant! So we could do that thing where we are drunk in the middle of the night and Liz is having breakfast and she's like, uh, and we're like, hi, Liz. Yeah, pretty much. It's Alison and Johnny the Bar. You're drunk, but it is the morning and I am sober, but I have an Almond Max. If you could arrange to have an Almond Max at that point, that would be really awesome. Okay, let's <laughs> let's not get too ambitious because I'm going to have to get up early for this. I'm not sure I'm going to get up early enough to go out and buy an Almond Max, but I will try. How early is it? Well, how late are you going to stay up? <laughs> well, I mean, at least 2am. I don't know. John. John is a lightweight, so these days. Well, I stay up later at conventions than I do on Zoom. We'll see, and you'll have a couple of goes at it, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Let me see when the croissant shop opens. I think we should probably aim for Friday Friday night. We are going to be there Thursday night. I might be very drunk by Friday night, though. We, I don't think, are going to be there on Thursday night. And also, on Friday, Liz will have work. And doing it on a day that Liz has work seems a bit antisocial. <laughs> yeah, we can't do it Thursday night. So, Friday night, Saturday morning? I'm just glad that all of this is going in the podcast so that people can hold us to it. Well, the croissant shop where they serve the Almond Maxes, which I will not, we have not explained on the podcast yet, so maybe that can be the pick for whenever you phone me up drunkenly. Uh, they open at 8.30, so I might have to go and get one the day before, just to be ready. Okay. Yeah, you might have to stick it in your oven. That's okay. 
Almond croissants don't really like being kept overnight. What do you mean? What do you mean? That'd be fine, but I think I will need an almond croissant and a coffee to cope with you guys. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.